0: And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas, and you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for April 7th, 2023, episode 3155, Good Morning Horse World.
2: I can't take it anymore! Thank
1: God it's Friday!
2: I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey.
1: And welcome back, Mary. You're not on Thursday this time. You're on Friday. Woohoo! Thanks for coming by. Not a problem. It's been it's been pretty crazy. It's been crazy. You have you didn't get to come out come on the show last month because you have had such a crazy busy schedule. Uh, you went to Southern Equine Expo. You went to Road to the Horse. Were there other ones that you went to since we were here last? You did a clinic somewhere. Uh,
0: I feel like. A whole bunch has happened. And now I can't remember (laughs) all the things we had Two markets in Dallas. Um, Oh, that's right. You did the market, the, the, uh, trade show. Yes. And I ran into Glenn there and one of our, I believe she's an auditor, Jamie with yellow barn media. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of a little horses in the morning thing. Um, so we did that, and then, yeah, this, uh, in in March, traveled to Tennessee and Kentucky for two horse events. There was the Southern Equine Expo, was the first one we hit, and then we went over to Road to the Horse, which was incredibly fun and exciting.
1: Wow, that's, now, how close together were those two, com- those two events? It
0: was back-to-back weekends, so it actually worked out perfectly, but also, I'm still
1: exhausted. Wow, because you did the trade show, which is exhausting. Because you're there, at right both there. Both of them, yeah. Both we of had them. a
0: booth, at both of them. Which was really yes. My mom's a saint because she worked the booths pretty much by herself
1: while I flitted about doing my horsey stuff. <laughs> well, explain to everybody what the trade show is and why you were there.
0: So, okay, so at the uh, the southern Eagle, so. Are you talking about the market or the The market? The market. Oh, okay, yeah. So that was um, it's WISA in um, uh, Dallas. Yeah, it's in Dallas. Yeah, Dallas
1: Western English Sales Association.
0: Yes, Yes. and it's all wholesale vendors. So all when you go to your local tax store and you're looking at clothing and tack and stuff, they likely got a lot of their product from one of these. trade shows. Um so all the people, you know, all the Western stores and and other kind of Western event people show up and they that's where they buy their tack and they buy their cool t-shirts and hats. And my mom and I make um artwork, like really cool Western cowgirl artwork. And then we also make our own western y cowgirl themed jewelry. So we had that there. Um and yeah it was a lot of fun very
1: busy very, very busy. So there are, I want to say a thousand or so vendors there. It's a crazy experience to be there. Now, do you do the trade show annually or do you go every X number of years?
0: We have actually just started doing these again. So we've gone the last two years in a row and it's very, uh, like, Filling the orders for it takes up a good chunk of our year, pretty much.
1: Right. Because all the the tax shops, what happens is as a tax shop owner, you go in there and you place your order, oftentimes for the entire year. Mm -hmm. You you can, I'm going to have a shipment in the first quarter, a shipment in the third quarter, that kind of thing. So it is, it's a Big, big deal for both vendors and tax shop owners. So I'm glad it was a great show for you and your mom. And then did you pack up and go home before you headed over to the Southern Equine Expo?
0: We did, because I think we had, I feel like I did stuff in February. I, I feel like I've been busy since Christmas ended. Um, <laughs> but no, we were home for a while, mainly getting ready for it, uh, for, for the expos, because You know, we're filling all these orders from the trade show. And then we've got to actually have product that people for the expos, whereas at the trade shows, they just point at it, say, I'll take five of those and two of these. And they don't actually take product home. We then go home and make it and then we send it out. But for the expos, um, you know, it's your retail customers. And so they actually pick it up, take it to the register and take it home. So we had to make a bunch of extra product for that. Um, and we left for that, uh, like March 14th, I think for the Southern
1: equine one. And the Southern equine one is in Tennessee, right?
0: It's in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. It is a great expo. Um, they had Ken McNabb there. Uh, they had Michael Gascon. They had, uh, people who were doing saddle fit. There was even a clicker trainer there and I didn't know who she was and I wanted to run her down and pick her brain on all things, clicker training, but I didn't have time. Um, but so they had, you know, just kind of like your, your typical expo, several arenas filled with different people showing everything from saddle fit to cold starting to obstacle course. And, um, it was a lot of fun. And then I was part of the, uh, they have a cult, their own cult starting competition. Um, and I was one of the trainers in that. And one of the unique things about this one is for the last number of years, they've made it all female.
1: Really? How fun.
0: Yeah, he got tired of dealing with guys and their egos.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So how does the Southern Equine Expo choose the students? How do they choose the horses? I know with Road to the Horse, they've got a particular farm they get them from on a particular method. How does it work at the Southern Equine Expo?
0: It's pretty similar in that the horses all come from a huge ranch in Tennessee called Lost Creek. I think it's Lost Creek Cattle. Um, I'll have to look that up. Um, But they have some really cool, lots of roans. They've got a lot of Hancock breeding. Um, and they use those horses every year. And the guy who puts on the expo, his name is Patrick. He actually takes a lot of time and effort to go to visit these horses when they're growing up and pick out, um, you know, the most optimal horses that are going to be, they're all going to be as similar as possible that should do a really good job in the colt starting. And, um, they're really cool horses. The first year I did it, I actually did it back in 2019 and when I showed up and they had the papers of all the colts that you could look at, and I saw on top and bottom of these papers, Hancock, 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 Hancock. And if you know anything about this line of quarter horses, it might make you shake in your boots a little bit because the kind of common belief with these horses is they buck and buck hard. Oh, so, yeah. So I showed up to the first expo like, Oh my God, they're Hancock bred. What am I going to do? But actually if you do a little bit more research, it's only kind of certain lines of, of that bloodline. And this ranch does a very good job of being really selective and picking the best horses that are going to have the most personality uh, you know, the they're going to be smart and willing to work and, you know, just they're going to be a performance horse. And, um, the Hancock horses actually they get a bit of a bad rap because um and some of them yeah they can be pretty bronky, but they're really smart and they're very like they really want to work with you and I've I felt that way the last the two years that I've done this competition they're they're actually pretty cool horses um and I really enjoyed working with them
1: now do they do it's it's a little confusing for those of us in the in the English universe because Colt is used for any youngster do they use colts or fillies
0: uh this year and i think last year as well they used fillies
1: we so use fillies.
0: yes it is a colt starting competition and colt is often in the western world used as a catch-all um so the first year i did it we did start geldings and then this year we were all working with fillies
1: all righty so do you go out and choose your own horse or is it assigned to you uh,
0: I believe the first year I did it, we drew to choose. So like if you draw or drew the one card, you got to go and say, okay, I want this horse. I think we did it that way. But this year, um, we were just handed a horse. So we actually did draw. We drew numbers for the round pen you're going to start in and um, the colt you were going to get. But we didn't know what the colts were. And, uh, so I drew three and they said, okay, this, then this is your colt. She's in the last stall over here. So it was pretty random. We did not get to choose. And that, I think that can be a good thing because then afterwards you don't have the, well, I didn't get the best pick or I didn't get yeah, the one I wanted. Random.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's everyone's random. in the same boat. We were all just handed a horse. Yeah. Interesting. So every show, this is when we do a training tip and it's, personally my favorite part of the show. And your training tip is invariably inspired by something. So I see here in our notes that the magic lunge and how to catch a horse are your training tip. How was that inspired?
0: So I got to bring Remy to this expo because he was going to do something at the next one road to the horse. And they asked if I could do a, like a tiny mini clinic slash demo for a Mustang ranch out in Tennessee that works with, um, with young women um, who may not have a chance to be around horses, and um, they were really great to work with. And so what I did, I kind of just made it up on the fly um, Remy had been locked in a stall for the last day or two because the weather was really bad and there weren't a lot of arenas open. So he was itching to get out. So what I did is I took him over to the arena where we were going to do the demo and I let him run around real quick. And because he was like full of energy, I thought, okay, this would be a great opportunity to work on, like, let's get his attention and get him hooked back on. So we did kind of like a mini, you know sort of hooking on session where I had uh, one girl at a time or sometimes two girls at a time go. And I showed them, here's where you need to step to get the horse to look at you and follow you and how, you know, a lot of times when we want to go out in the pasture and catch our horses, we go right for their face because that's where I'm going to put on your halter and lead you. And oftentimes that can make them turn away and leave us. And if you're working with a horse that's never been touched or minimally touched, that can be pretty
1: um threatening for him. That's that's or if you're big. working if you're working with a horse that is over threshold, for example. He's been stuck in his yeah. stall, he's in a new place. Oh my gosh, this is ah! so yeah. even if you yeah. have a horse that's typically pretty darn easy to catch, you can walk right up to his face. Or a horse, for example, that has gotten loose and it's running around. So it's way over threshold. The mm-hmm. typical thing that you would do to pick to go catch that horse because he's Mr. Nice Guy. Might not work.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Coming at them head on can, that can be a lot of big energy for some horses and it'll make them want to turn away. And then, you know, we have this vicious cycle of we're trying to run them down and they don't want to be cut. And yeah. um, And it's something that I developed um, my own version of it over the years with working with Mustangs because one of the biggest challenges I had when I very first started training Mustangs was getting that first touch and that first contact and getting them halter broke. You know, I might get to where I could get them to stand still while I touched them, but then I'd try to put the halter on and they'd run away and then I'd have to start all over. And, um, and, I was taught several methods over the years in how to get a horse to do to hook on or do join up or what have you. And every trainer has their own version. and the the very first iteration of it uh, was something that the trainer told me it's called the Magic Lunge. And this was a method supposedly developed by KB Jeffries, who is also known for a very popular method in the cult starting world called the Jeffries method. And we've talked about that on the show before. And that's uh, to paraphrase, you're pretty much uh, climbing all over a horse bareback. It's a lot of close contact with the body. It's really calming for the horse gets them used to weight on their back. It's a great exercise to work on. Um, And that's the one that that The, you know, the Jeffries method, that's what he's known for. But there was also this magic lunge technique and it's how you can get, it's, if you do it correctly by the end of it, it looks like you have an invisible halter on your horse and you can put, you can direct the horse anywhere you want that follow you around like their halter broke. And that's actually how I halter break. I have that horse pretty much leading before they, a halter is ever on their head. And it makes it very low, minimal resistance, very calm. Because if you put a halter on a horse that's never been haltered, and you start trying to pull on that halter, you can get some very big and very scary reactions because they have no idea what you're doing, and you've put a, uh, you know, a restraint on the most sensitive area in their body, and you're pulling on them. Um, so a prey animal that's never had that done is probably going to go, I need to survive because this feels like danger and they can flip over and run off. And then you've got to fix all these problems before you even really started your training adventure together.
1: So you're, you're creating a relationship and a, and a trusting relationship before you go putting a piece of equipment on the animal, which he's encoded to resent "Ah, don't horses don't want to be trapped. And yeah, got it.
0: Exactly. And if you can get your horse to figure out early on, I should face this person. This is the best place to be. And I should follow this person and stay with this person. Then when you put the halter on, you don't have to do everything with the halter. You can start slowly putting a little pressure on the halter as the horse is already following you. So it's not this big, scary thing. You have told the horse through several steps, this is what I want to happen. I want you to be with me. I want you to follow me around. And then when you add the halter, you can still have them pretty much following around at Liberty, but every so often I'm going to lift the rope and direct your nose this way. And it's very gentle. And then pretty soon you start giving more responsibility to the halter. But by the time you do that, they're like, I know the name of the game. It's, I should just stick with you. And for all my Mustangs that I've halter broken this way, You know, it's all very calm and very, you know, easy, but there is gonna be something that inevitably happens. Maybe the first time I lead them out, or let's say a plastic bag flies around uh, around the round pin. And they are probably gonna have a moment where they do hit that halter full pressure. But if I've established a really thorough history of the answer is always to stay with me and look at me and put your attention on me, they might hit that halter and go (gasps) for a second, but they're gonna immediately revert to, okay, I'm unsure of what to do. And I've been told when I'm unsure, I should face my person. And that's happened to me more than once where, you know, something outward happened, spooked my horse, and they they really hit that halter for the first time. And yeah, it's scary for about a second. And they're like, no, no, I know the answer. I know what I'm supposed to do. It's not to panic. It's to stay with my person. And that's how they learn, you know, how to give to that halter in a way that's not dangerous. And, you know, it's not going to create bad issues or get either of us hurt. I have a quick and, question.
1: Yes. You see everywhere in the western universe and it's even in in the a lot in the english universe nowadays everybody uses a rope halter. Does it is the rope halter an essential part of the process or is that just a preferred piece of equipment that is part of the bigger picture because I've always been curious about that. And growing up in the english universe for the most part never saw a rope halter after Mm -hmm. about 1972 because before that you could either get a leather halter or a rope halter and that's all there was. But now everybody for training purposes, I'm going to use my air quotes, everybody's got a rope halter and every other day it seems that somebody's reinventing the rope halter. Can this be done effectively and efficiently and well with any kind of halter or does it need to be a rope halter?
0: No, it does not need to be a rope halter and Um, you can get this done web halter, leather halter just as well. Um, and it's really interesting because I also grew up with your traditional either web nylon halters or leather halters. And then when the natural horsemanship thing kind of started exploding, you saw everyone using rope halters. And then you had, you know, people who are like, we put special nuts on this halter and it works on the pressure points on their nose. Um, I don't have anything against those, but they're not magic. Uh, and, uh, I was actually surprised cause I was still in my very like hardcore rope halter era because I worked for people who were like, this is my special halter I invented it and it's the best and you shouldn't use anything else. And so I was very like, and I still use rope halters every day. I have tons of rope halters. Um, but so I had kind of been led to believe rope halter is it, man, that if you're going to do groundwork rope halter, um, And then I went and rode with uh, a gentleman named Martin Black, who is amazing. Uh, I think he's a wizard when it comes to colt starting. Um, I will never be that good. He's really, really good. And he surprised me um, when I saw that all of his halters, that he's doing colt starting all over the country, um, were web halters. And I asked him about it, and he said, you know, a lot of the horses he starts he, he's actually started a lot of racehorses, but he'll, he starts a lot of ranch horses that are just kind of, you know, living in the mountains until it's time to be ridden. Uh, so they're pretty, you know, uh, pretty much a blank slate as far as horses go. And he said um, he actually prefers the web halters because his horses are so sensitive uh, that he starts that he thinks that it's much more supportive. Um, and even a horse, you know, barring a horse, that's like got, had some serious issues with running off with people. Um, you know, a web halter will work on any horse. And I found over the years that it has less to do with whatever equipment you decide to put on them and more to do with your energy and your timing and being able to realize a positive change and releasing so many people wait way too long to release pressure reward. And if you start looking at how a horse behaves and what the horse is thinking about doing and releasing, then you will get some crazy, awesome results. So yeah, you can use, you know, as long as it's a safe, you know, ethical piece of equipment you don't need a special magical halter to do it um and it, you know that's part of my journey over the years is every year I feel like oh man horses are really way more sensitive than I thought and every year I'm learning to get softer and softer and softer um, interesting
1: yeah that's yeah. interesting because it is easy to fall into a trap and it's not just halters it's equipment in general every piece of equipment, There's no such thing as any piece of equipment that's magic. Every single piece of equipment ever created to be used with a horse has to be used properly in that particular moment to do what it's purported to do. It can be bits, halters, saddles, bell boots. Doesn't matter. There's no such thing as a magic pill. You just throw it on there and irregardless of how it's used because there's always a human interaction that it's going to do its job. Very interesting about the halters. So, I'm going to ask another question. Lead ropes. That I have a rope halter on Nigel because I have found it's more effective for me. I have a tendency to just pull on my horse a lot. It's an mm-hmm. old habit. And I don't pull on that because psychologically I go, oh, that's skinny. I shouldn't pull on that. And I'm much more cognizant of using my halter properly. Pressure release versus just dragging around. So it's working for me. But I hate that big, long, permanently attached lead rope that they tend to put on rope halters. It's not familiar to me. I don't use it. So I just have a a regular lead rope with a snap on the bottom. I see some training techniques where that chunk at the bottom under their chin, whether it's a giant knot or a snap on a lead rope, is part of the technique of using the halter and the lead rope together. Do you typically have halters with snaps on them or are you more prone to the lead rope that is attached via a knot which is your
0: so i fall somewhat in between i don't like metal snaps on the rope because um you know some of the things i do groundwork wise like if i teach a horse to back up i like to wave my lead rope and I don't want that metal snap jingling and hitting them in the face or anything like that. Um, and you know, it's just kind of heavy hanging off of them. Um, so I like, you know, a soft, I, you know, I don't mind that kind of knot where the lead rope meets the halter, but I want it to be soft. Um, however, it is, very annoying if I want to leave a halter on a horse, but I want to take the lead rope off, or maybe I want to change to a shorter lead rope and I have to like unstring it, untie it, and put a different lead rope on, or put a whole new halter set on. So I'm actually the next time I need to buy rope halters, I'm gonna go. They they make some, I think Dan, Dan James has them, but I think other companies make them too, where um it it will unclip from the halter but it's all rope that they've made the quote-unquote snap out of if that makes sense
1: interesting Hmm. yeah we need to contact dan have him come on tell us about it i know right (laughs) how did he how did he make that that's interesting but because you're right especially i i prefer the giant sized brass snaps because they're easier for my hands Mm -hmm. but you're right if you're using your lead rope um, in that fashion where it's kind of waves around and is a, is a cue for your horse, that giant snap can really cause mischief. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Especially for a little horse, for example, Scooter, 12 and a yeah. half hands. You start waving that sucker around. If he flips his head the wrong direction, it could flip up high enough to wrap, wrap him right in the face. Mm-hmm. D- don't or ask me thing. how I know like, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you, have, you do have to be careful if you've got snaps. Nigel's has the itty-bitty little cheapo snap. I think the lead rope cost me $3. Mm-hmm. So if I think if I stepped on that snap really hard, it would probably just crush. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, I made it dummy proof for me. That's interesting. So circling back around to how to catch your horse, we're going to set up a scenario. Horse is out and about in the field. Typically easy to catch. You just walk up to him and put his halter on or walk up to him and grab his halter. Today, Mm -hmm. he's not that horse. What are, what is the process we should go through to teach ourselves how to catch a horse properly?
0: So let's say it's out in the field and maybe you haven't done any kind of like join up or hooking on work in a round pen or smaller area. Um, you know, there's a horse out there. You got to catch it. Won't be caught. Um, what I will do for that particular scenario, I will use a method called walking down where I will walk to the horse. I'm not going to try to hide anything. I'm not going to be too aggressive, but I'm not going to be too sneaky. Um, I may try, uh, to kind of go side to side to get their attention and getting looking at me, but if they're turning away and they're like, we're done. Um, then I will actually just fall in behind them and walk behind them. And if they take off running, I will just keep walking. You know, if they go to the other side of the field, I'll just take my time getting over there. And if, you know, they might run back and forth a few times, but it really doesn't take that long. Um, I just casually, I'll just start walking behind them. What's going to happen after some time. And this is like a very watered down version of Monty Roberts join up. Um, you know, when you have the luxury of the round pin, you can get things done a little bit faster, you can be a little bit more uh, assertive. Uh, But you know, if the horse is out on 300 acres, they know they're on 300 acres. They're like, "Eh." (laughs) I know you can't, you know, you can't do much. So I just I I, it's the same kind of idea, but it's just really watered down. But if you follow, I fall behind them. And it's almost like I'm driving them to an extent. I'm not going to wave my hands or chase them off or try to punish them or make them feel bad. Because even if that's what my goal was, um, he can still run away and not have to deal with me at all. So I'm not going to like try to add a whole bunch of pressure, but I'm just going to walk behind him. After a while, they're going to start flicking an ear back toward me or kind of like looking at me like, what are you doing? And when I start to see that, that's when I stop my feet and I might even turn and walk away. Like any kind of gesture that they're going to look at me, I'm going to take that pressure off. And I don't care if I've got to have that horse caught for the farrier in two seconds, I'm going to act like I got all day. Of course, that's the very common old adage we've always heard. Act like, you know, act like you have all day. It'll take you a few minutes, blah, blah, So, uh, I am, you know, anytime that horse gives me any sign of maybe even just slowing down, slowing down or acknowledging me in any way, I'm going to stop my feet and maybe back away, turn, turn and walk away. And then I'll give them a second and then I'll approach again. And if they walk away, we'll just start all over again. And I'm just going to look every time I'm doing this, I'm looking for something I can reward. It's really hard when you have a halter in your hand and a very clear agenda of what you want to do with your horse today to not think, I have to get this horse caught. Oh my God. You start thinking like that, it's not going to happen. Um so instead of thinking about the thing to reward. So we tend to think about the end product. I want to put a halter on my horse and lead them out of the pasture. Well if they're leaving you, you're not going to get that far yet. You have to find something between that That you can show the horse that was good. I like what you did there. And I just keep doing that over and over, you know, walk behind them if they're walking away and anytime they acknowledge me or face me, look at me, I'm going to release pressure and it feels like it'll never happen. But if you do this enough, eventually that horse is just going to go, okay, and you can catch him but you can have more success if before you get to that point of your 300 acres and your horse is clearly like not wanting to get caught. If you work on this in a smaller area, like a round pin, or I actually do it in my square arena. I like the square because the horse has some area, they can go to the corners. I want them to get in the corners and kind of try to escape me a little bit. I don't, I think a round pin is very valuable and I love round pins, but in a round pin, I don't think the horse ever really feels like they have the choice to leave. Um, you know, totally. Cause you know, they're always just going around and they're very close contact with you. So I really like my little 60 foot square pin and I have an 80 foot square pin, which works as well. Um, But so I'm gonna I'm gonna work on the horse in a smaller area first as part of our training, and what I do in that case is I establish what do I want to happen first. If you are working with a horse that's halter broke, it's very easy to want to skip all the other steps and just put a halter on because they'll probably let you. But if you're working with a Mustang and you know you're not going to be able to walk and put a halter on, you have to figure out how can I lead them to the understanding that a halter is going to be okay. So I have to establish, well, what do I want to happen first? Obviously, I can't get the halter on them. So the first thing I want, I want the horse to look at me, no matter where I'm in the pen. If I walk into the pen, they need to be looking at me. And that's what I get to happen first. So how I get that to happen with a Mustang, it's as easy, often as easy as just clapping my hands because a Mustang does not want to take their eyes off of you. They're like, what are you about? Are you going to kill me? They really want to look at you because they they feel if they don't look at you, Maybe you'll chase them down or something. They don't know. So it's actually very easy to get a Mustang to look at you. If it's a horse that's very used to your presence and they don't really care that you're in the pen with them, I may have to drive them forward a little bit and then step out in front. Or maybe I'll step side to side and kind of cut them off. And one one of the times when I'm doing that, they're going to turn in. It, you know, usually it's just a coincidence that it happens, but as soon as they turn into me, I'm gonna back away. I may even leave the round pin if it was really challenging to begin with. You know, I want to do whatever I can to show the horse looking at me is good. It's very hard to catch a horse that's leaving you. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's where I start. And you can do this by round pinning the horse a little bit, sending them forward around the round pin. I actually don't do as much of that anymore. Um, I will later on, but for catching purposes, I will create just enough movement to where I can get that horse to look at me. So like I said, I might send them forward and then step out in front. They turn to the outside, I'll send them forward the other way and then immediately step out in front. And we'll kind of do that back and forth. And one time they're going to turn to the inside and I back
1: away. And that's how
0: I get started.
1: Yeah, and I think I think the value of doing this. Well, I'm going to call it in slow motion, because after you explained this whole method to me, this is how I catch my horses. And I never did the round pen thing. I never, I did, I kept the energy low intentionally throughout the process. Every time I go out to the field to interact with them, and I would go out a lot, even if I wasn't going to ride or anything, I just go out and catch them. In other words get up there, put a halter on, take the halter off, and leave. And I intentionally just approached the horse at an angle so that they saw me and they had a choice. They could either turn towards me and come to me or not. And if they chose not to, I would, as gently as I possibly could, using my body language to tell them to move away from me. You have a choice. You can either come towards me or move away. You you chose to move, not to come towards me. Okay, okay, shoo, walk. Well, they're out in their pasture relaxing all day. They don't want to walk around. They want to eat. So it's very motivating for them to turn and come towards me. Keep walking. And the moment there was any indication in their body that they were looking towards me (laughs) instead of towards the next blade of grass. Okay, you don't have to walk anymore. And it didn't take too long of just doing that, that they both got the hint that when I come out to the field. And I approached them as if I was at about a 40-degree angle. Oh, there's the human. I may as well just come over. <laughs> and it, yes. it, it doesn't have to be a high-energy thing. It can be. Sometimes it needs to be. But it doesn't have to. And you don't have to have any pen at all.
0: So yeah, they want the path of least resistance. They're like us. I don't want to work any harder than I have to. They want everything to be quiet. They want peace as much as we want peace. The problem is our wires get crossed. It's not because the horse doesn't think I'm the alpha or he's, he's showing me attitude or he's being disrespectful. He's trying to do what's in his best interest and that's to survive. That's to find safety, comfort, and food. And if I can show him that I can provide those things. I can make you feel safe. I can make you feel, um, you know, okay and, uh, and comfortable. And, you know, I, I can provide you food as well. Um, They, they want to work with us. Most horses, especially our domestic bred horses, they, they really want to work with us. So if things aren't going right, it's on us to reevaluate, okay, how am I presenting this to them? Maybe I need to change what I'm doing. It's not about the horse saying, oh, you're, I don't think you're the alpha. So I'm going to disrespect you. That's honestly, it's a load of malarkey. Um, So, so yeah. So I think your approach is perfect. You know, use as little as necessary and reward as much as possible.
1: Well, we're going to take a quick break here and hear from from, hear from some of our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Road to the Horse and Remy's Adventures. Woo-hoo.
2: Each week, you carefully plan out your horse's training schedule. You work with your trainer to fine-tune his flat work. You school through grids to perfect his jump and set up multiple courses to educate your eye. You enjoy long hacks to keep his mind fresh and body strong. Show day arrives. You take a deep breath as you enter the ring. We've got this, you whisper so only he can hear you. You move as one, sailing over each element in perfect harmony. The feeling you get when it all clicks. It's why we do what we do. This feeling is brought to you by Joint Armor. Joint Armor's complete formula provides your horse with the nutrients necessary to support healthy joints throughout his lifetime. Joint Armor maintains fluid motion and flexibility in hard-working joints. It supports normal cartilage development and reduces joint deterioration. Joint Armor provides high levels of both glucosamine and chondroitin, plus 100 milligrams of hyaluronic acid. Best of all, Joint Armor is affordable. One small jar lasts up to 75 days. The horse that matters to you, matters to Kentucky Performance Products.
1: Okay. Remy went to road to the horse after he was a rock star at the Southern equine expo. What was his job at road to the horse this year?
0: So he did a few things. Um, we did some, uh, meet and greets. So we got to go on the arena floor where all the, the big famous guys were signing autographs. And at the end of that table was Mr. Remy and we were there, uh, representing Mustang heritage foundation. Um, and, uh, teaching people about mustangs and the mustang makeover competition. So, uh, so we got to, you know, be an ambassador for that. And then we had a, they did a really cool thing this year where on the, during the opening ceremonies, they had all sorts of like different trainers. Um, they had trainers doing clinics on Thursday, which was really cool. Um, Tick Maynard was there and, um, they had Liberty trainers there. And then during the opening ceremonies on Friday, they had people come in and do like a, a quick little six minute thing. And you had Luke Gingrich and his Palomina who were doing a crazy, awesome bridalist training. And he, um, he also clicker trains. So I thought it was cool to, we had clicker training at rode Road to the Horse two years in a row. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah and uh they had vaulters they had um uh david o'connor which was awesome um wow really mixing it up i know and they had like police they showed police training and it was really cool and so we did a, a little six minute deal on um uh mustang makeovers and uh you know, the instructions I was given was you have six minutes. You're going to mic'd, talk about your thing, and you can also do a performance. So I thought I would show a little of the Garocha stuff that I do in my freestyle. Now, I don't know what it is about this arena, the, the horse park arena um, in Alltech. It, it's really scary for horses, or at least every horse I've ever shown in there has not <laughs> liked that arena. And I've shown in some really big packed arenas with tons of energy and for some reason that one kind of wigs my horses out everyone else's horses were perfect um (laughs) but and it's it's hard at road to the horse because there's no warm-up there's a small arena which is really nice outside but usually this time of year it's raining or snowing and it's sloppy and it's this kind of white kind of gravelly footing. And so you you just get that all over your horse before you're supposed to go in and show. Um So I had no warm up. And one thing that I'm learning about Remy, and this is its own training topic in and of itself. So when you're showing, um one of the things that you have to learn is how to warm up your horse. And the thing about it is every horse is different. Every horse has their own preferences and eccentricities and so you've got to figure that out for each individual horse and it can take years to kind of figure out what's the best warm up for that horse and that can be its own training topic um but Remy is tricky because in the warm-up pen, he always acts like he's so put upon and he's like barely moving and he just acts so tired. And like I have, you know, I have to really push him to get him into the canner. And so I always fall for it. I'm like, it's okay, guy. It's it's okay. We we won't do any more warm-up. You're ready. You're you're good. And then he gets in the arena and he's like, Wee! and everything goes out the window and steering is more of a suggestion than an actual command that I give him. Um, And so that's kind of what we've experienced at road of the horse. The last two years is he'll be in that arena warming up like a champ, just beautiful. And then when we go to do our big performance, he's like, I remember nothing. Um, (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. Now a lot of this does exist in my head because what I think is a horrible disaster and I'm like, he's running off. I look at the video and he's like barely loping around.
1: That's but, interesting too. So your, yeah. your perception is feeding into that energy. That's interesting. Maybe, it feels way worse than it
0: is. That's yeah. what everyone should remember when they show. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I experience that too. Whenever I don't show very often, but when I do, I frequently will be able to watch the video and go, Oh, well, I wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, like okay, that was fine. <laughs> but it doesn't feel the same way as it does at home or in the warm-up if it feels different, therefore it must be bad. Very interesting. So so he he's he's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at the All Tech Arena. Do you, but he's not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at other arenas. Is that is that what happens?
0: Actually, so it it's definitely more pronounced at all tech, but he's kind of done that to me at other shows as well where I definitely felt more energy than I thought he had in him in the show pen. Um even though he warmed up like he was, you know, at death's door uh, and <laughs> But I was still able to, like, keep it together. Um, the And so I need to actually make him probably work a little bit in the warm-up pen. Um, and then he started this thing at the last two cow horse shows I went to where, and this is not, I don't blame him for this at all. This is more my thing. Um, I don't have cattle at home. So oftentimes he doesn't get to see a cow until we go to a show. But he's always handled it really well. But the last two shows, when the cow popped in the arena, he was like, oh, my God, what is that? (laughs) And it's taken me a few seconds to be like, remember cows? Well, we're going to chase this one. And you're going to be cool with it, okay? That's Um, hard. Yeah. Yeah. How can you
1: practice with cows if you don't have cows,
0: right? (laughs) I know. I have donkeys I can chase around. So I may start doing that. Um, But, yeah, so he does it at other events, too. It's just not as bad. And I had – I was – uh, auditing a clinic by Annie Chance who is like a multi champion um extreme cowboy race winner person she's really talented she's been the the Calgary Stampede doing all that and she was saying when she warms up she works that horse until you know they have you know a decent amount of sweat on and like you know when um uh, from I don't know if this happens as much with english horses but western horses um, when they're working and they're sweating, they'll have like a little line of sweat that comes down from the saddle pad around the flank area. And she's for her, that's her marker. Like, okay, you have you're warmed up completely. Cause her she mentioned in the clinic that she's had horses that did the same thing, acted like, you know, kind of cool and chill and maybe a little pokey and lazy. So you're like, oh, I don't want to overdo it. And then they get in there and they're like, Wee! I don't remember anything. Um And, you know, it doesn't work that way for every horse. Some horses, if you overwork them in the warm-up pen, they just get hot and bothered and they're more angry in the show pen. And some horses are just the consummate pro and they just need to be warmed up enough that, you know, they're not going to have an injury.
1: Yeah. Um, Now, is is Remy, does Remy have things that you do with him that kind of light him up? For example, with Nigel, if I want to light that horse up, believe me, it doesn't take much, all I have to do is three turnbacks, and he becomes a a time bomb. Just three turnbacks, that's all it takes. And he he's hes even more sensitive than normal, because typically he's the kind of horse that, if I want to trot, I think the word trot, and we're trotting. So if I want to make him even more than that, <laughs> a couple of turnbacks, does the trick. Does Remy have things in his repertoire that really light him up?
0: See, that's the tricky thing is he's it, when he's at home or when we're in the warm up pen, he is not a hot horse. In fact, most of the time I am saying, hey, I asked you to do this. You should do it right now. And he's like, ah, OK, um, so there's nothing I can like do training wise to kind of get them all revved up. Ooh, we need to find training- things that get him revved up. Well, the one thing that kind of gets his interest and gets him like, you know, ears perked forward and his eyes are all sparkly is when I break out the cookies and I start doing a lot of clicking and treating. Then he's like, oh my God, let's do this. Interesting. Um, yeah, and I haven't figured out yet if doing more of that at a show is better or if it's just getting him over aroused and riled up. So it's it's going to be my detective mission yeah. this year to figure out the perfect warm-up that will make yeah. him show
1: that's hard best. to do too because you waste a lot of entry fee money doing that
0: oh my you God, just have yeah. to go
1: to competition after competition after competition and keep experimenting and taking notes and experimenting and taking notes and it costs a lot of money and it's very frustrating
0: <laughs> i had a trainer once tell me that it takes five years to learn how to show um and that's very true. Probably longer because training is one thing. Showing is it's like two different disciplines.
1: It is. It's two different skill sets. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. I'm getting better at training. I still suck at showing.
0: <laughs> yeah. And there's there's all sorts of little, I don't want to say tricks because it's not like you're cheating or anything, but little things you can do. You know, like I had for the raining, a lot of times the pattern calls for you to walk to the center and maybe start the pattern with a spin. And um your horse could be spinning like a million bucks in the warm-up pen or at home, but that's when you're like you're telling the horse, we're gonna spin now and we're gonna work on spins for half an hour. So the horse is like, yeah, spin, spin, spin. Now take the same horse and he's in a strange arena, and we're walking to the middle, and there's you know, crowd full of people and judges and chairs and stuff, and you stop him in the middle and you have you say spin now. And a lot of horses are not in spin mode. They're like, wait. What are we, what's that sign on the arena? Why are there people in chairs? Why are there, why is everyone in here? And you need them to spin like right now. And so, you know, that's how, you don't find that out till you get to the show and you ask for a spin and your horse is like, what? I don't know. Yes. I have yes. no idea. Even Absolutely. though it was just spinning
1: perfect in the warm up pen. Yeah. And it works the same way in English disciplines. That famous trot down the center line, halt at X, and the horse goes airborne, and i was I always used, used to be so frustrated because i so, I did a lot of retrain the horse in oh, my previous time. career and then huh. and then sell him on well you trot down an X and you halt and you salute and you have these little short dressage tests with twelve movements maybe, and they'd take three and a half minutes by the time the horse got used to being in the arena. the test was over <laughs> exactly so it's this it's that same thing, so one of the things that I started doing with Nigel, because he is so lit up when he's away from home, is practicing, not not the test necessarily, but doing a lot of schooling sessions as if I was riding the test. Warm up, mm-hmm. ride the test, done. Warm up, ride the test, done. And I didn't do the test I was actually going to compete at because otherwise the horses memorize it and that's not so great because they anticipate right. things and it doesn't go out. It doesn't come out so well but to teach myself to ride literally ride the horse in the moment get the best movement you can but stay in that movement so that moment so that the move the 20 circle 20 meter circle you just did which turned out to be a potato does not bleed into the cross the diagonal that you have to do now if you're still thinking about that circle you fouled up you're not going to ride the diagonal very well so you come into the arena at a walk you halt, and you have to do that spin. Part of that skill set is, okay, the spins didn't go as I anticipated, but I've got to ride the horse I've got at this exact moment. So the next movement that comes next, strike off off at the lope left, doesn't, that's a whole new movement that has to be ridden in the moment. It can't be, oh, things sucked in my my previous movement. And that's, now when you're competing in, the ranch classes where you have cattle to deal with. How does that work? Because you can't anticipate what the cow's going to do. How do you deal with things aren't going well in this particular moment? I need to get them better when you've got cows. That
0: is a whole other can of worms that I, so I consider myself a flat beginner when it comes to cow work. And unfortunately, because I'm a professional trainer, I can't show in the baby beginner class, um, I have to show in the open class against can the they, guys. Can't they have- give you special dispensation? I have no cows. <laughs> I know the the only the only thing I can do in this particular um uh, event is I can show in a class that's called the level one open, which is still you are a professional. You must show in the open but you're not like one of the big guys who wins everything. It's it's based on earnings. Like so if you I've
1: only the- won fifty dollars, I should be able to be exactly little-
0: <laughs> which is exactly I think what my earnings are <laughs> at the moment <laughs> in that event. Um, but you're still competing against really good people because a lot of there's like youth kids that have been doing this forever and kicking everyone's butt and they show in the open just for fun. And, um, and then there's me who doesn't know what the heck I'm doing in cow work and they're kicking my butt all over the place. So it's still extremely competitive. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in, in, in the cow class, you're dealing with two live thinking animals at the same time. And you have to read that cow as well as you can read your horse. And there's things that I've picked up, you know, like if your cow comes out and his tail's ringing and he looks like he's just gonna run and run and run and run. In the first part of your cow class, you're supposed to box the cow, which is you're just holding the cow at one end of the arena. And you're showing my horse can keep this cow on this side of the arena. And that's a great way if your cow comes out and he's hell bent for leather, to stay back off the cow and you work him in that boxing portion of the pattern until that cow's like a little tired. Because then the next thing you're doing is you're running that cow down the fence, which is really fast. And if that cow is like on fire, it's going to be really hard for your horse to keep up and catch him. You got to run him down the fence and turn him on that fence both ways. So you're running alongside the cow and then you dive in in front of the cow and cut him off, make the cow go the other way. Then you got to do it again at the other end of the arena so there's a lot of things with positioning your horse maybe your horse isn't so fast or maybe he's not so cowy. so you want to stay back off of the cow um you know because the closer you get to the cow the faster the cow goes the harder it is to keep up it's a whole other thing and yeah you're having to figure it out in the moment but as far as you know you brought up a really good point of you know yep this maneuver went to but we're still in this. As a judge, and this kind of goes into uh, a lot of what I saw at Road to the Horses that weekend, is you've got a score sheet in front of you, and you've got all these boxes, and if it's a pattern that you're judging, you've got a box for, let's say it's trail class, a box for how they worked the gate, a box for how did they go over the bridge, a box for how did they trot over these poles. And so maybe they get a two because they messed up their one circle, but they could get a 10 on the next thing. And if you can get enough 10s in that pattern, you can win that class. I have won classes before where one of the maneuvers was abysmal. But I scored so well on everything else. I won the class. And so in I, this is why I encourage people who, who show if there are score sheets and judges notes available, you go look at them. You look at your run. You look at competitors' runs. You look at competitors that you thought you did better than. And see how did our scores line up? What you know, or you look at competitors that won the class. I like to look at the class winners a lot. Like, what did, what's the judge scoring? And I I watch their run, and then I go look at that competitor scorecard, and it helps me see. Okay, this is what I need to do this is this is what is scoring. This is how the scores line up. and Because it can be very misleading if you get your scores back and so-and-so scored 10 points above you. It seems like they wiped the floor with you. But when you do the math and break it down, you'll see that, oh, well, I got sixes on every man- maneuver. I was above average. And they got sevens on every maneuver. So in each maneuver, we were neck and neck. But when you add the total, it shows they were 10 points ahead. That can be very discouraging. But if you look oh. at what you guys scored on each thing. Yeah. Yeah. You'll realize I'm only one point behind them on each maneuver. And that's very encouraging. And I'm like, I just need to get one point better on each maneuver. And I am right there with
1: them. Interesting. So um, I'm, I'm quizzing you about all sorts of things showing today. This is not where we thought the conversation would go, but here it is. I know when you're competing and things are going pear shaped. And I know I've done this more times than I care to remember. You just say, to heck with my score. This is what I need to do so that the next time we come to this comp- to a competition, things can be better. Yes. For, ex- for example, the last time I showed uh, Nigel in a dressage show, I got to, okay, bell rings, time to start the class. was riding around on a hand grenade with the pin pulled out. Okay, I'm going to stay on. if I have to literally walk every single movement in the test, that's what I'm going to do. So that when we leave at the end of the test, Nigel can say, Oh, that wasn't so bad because when he's exploding is when things, you know, that's when he's over threshold and life sucks for him. Are there circumstances under which you're at a competition with any given horse where you're just going to say, whatever the score is, doesn't matter. I need to do certain things. And what might those certain things be?
0: Yes, absolutely. And uh, we saw uh, if you watched and you rode to the horse, uh, we saw two examples of that where both competitors, it was Guy McLean and J.R. Robles, both decided um, at different points in the event, you know what, it's more important for me to keep this horse in a good frame of mind. And uh, I'm going to help him through this. This is not going to get me a good score. I know this and acknowledge this, but it's more important for me to help the horse. Uh, In Guy's case, he was helping the horse get through the obstacle course by leading the horse, which I don't even know if you get a score for that probably, but it's not going to be very high at all. And in JR's case where his horse just said, I'm done, his horse gave everything he could and then said, I can't do it anymore. And JR said, okay. And we see that not just with colts in a colt starting competition. Um, I did that with Remy at the last show we were at. Um, The cow class was not going well. And, um, you know, even, even if I'm, Doing really well, but I hit something and I see that it's going to be more important to keep my horse mentally sound so he can show up another day and do well. I will totally throw that class and you know help my horse. Now, that doesn't give you leave to you know or get after your horse or do anything like that or spend 10 minutes. Holding up the whole show so that you can do a certain thing with your horse. Um, in my case, I just pulled Remy up, I backed him up a couple of steps, and nodded and said, "Okay, we're done." Left the pen, got a zero on the um, on the pattern, and then I went to a warm up arena and I fixed whatever issue we had. Um, so you know that, yeah. Like I said, it doesn't mean you stop. You know, stop the whole show so you can. Really train on your horse, but absolutely, if you need to get off and lead your horse through, or you know, or just stop the class and say you know nod to the judge and and leave, and then go help your horse, you know, in one of the other arenas, totally acceptable. And I think every one of us had had to do that with a horse at one point or the other.
1: And speaking of helping your horse, what about your saddle? Yes, your saddle, whether you're training or riding on the trails or in the warm up arena. There's a Wintech saddle for almost every horse and rider combination, and the right saddle certainly helps horse and rider both have a better ride. The Wintech 2000 All Purpose is for the riders who want to do a little bit of everything. That's me. From training to fun beach days with friends, you will experience total luxury in this top of the range Wintech saddle. Your horse will adore the super soft panels, which mold in and around their muscles for complete comfort. Sinking into the deep seat, your leg will find its natural groove and your contact and communication will become effortless, so you can focus on having fun. Explore the entire Wintech range at www.wintech-saddles.com. So let's, let's explore this topic a little bit further about schooling, warming up versus competing. We're all afraid of being accused of giving up. There's working through. For example, you're, because this is my little universe in the English world, your horse is wanting to chip in a lot over fences. So your next class is the 2-6 green hunters. You push the horse forward into a longer stride. You do a lot of work with his rideability. You shorten and lengthen, and shorten and lengthen. It gives you a crapola score because in a hunter ring... The whole thing should be absolutely consistent. But you go in that class and you go, you know, I'm going to fix this rideability problem to heck with my score. That's working through a problem versus your horse is chipping it in every fence. He's trying to buck. He's acting completely out of character. I might get to the second fence and just put my hand up and say, there's something amiss here. It could be that he's sore. It could be that there's some piece of tack that's wrong. I'm going to raise my hand and leave the arena, and see if I can fix the problem. That's two different things, working through a problem, and saying, "Um, not my day, I need to leave the arena to figure out what the problem is before I can fix it, right? If you recognize where the problem is, and have a plan that you can work through it sensibly while you're still in the competition, blow your score, but work through it just the same, versus not sure what the problem is. I think I need to step aside and find some space where I can figure out where the problem is.
0: Exactly. And both of those are not only perfectly acceptable, but I believe it's part of training. And I don't know if they do this in the English world, but in a lot of Western events, I know in a lot of raining shows, they will have a day before maybe the main show starts called a paid warmup. So you are going in there, at a time, you know, and, and, um, you, sometimes they'll give you a pattern and sometimes you just go and pretend you're on a pattern. And that's, it, it's so great. Cause you pay an entry fee, um, and you act like you're showing, but you know, maybe when I walk to the center of the ring, I'm going to sit on my horse for like. Thirty seconds, so he doesn't think he has to jump the gun and do all these maneuvers. And then maybe I will do a simple lead change instead of a flying. So you, you either they've given you a pattern that you can kind of use, or you just create your own pattern. Pretend you're showing, but you're doing everything really calm. And if your horse has an issue, you have they'll give you like three to five minutes to where you can do whatever you want to, you know, help the horse not anticipate when they do show or get too upset. Um again, you have to be reasonable. You're not gonna go in there and just like wail on your horse.
1: <laughs> you you're helping your horse. Um and it's, it's so kind of have a have step that. up from because nowadays you see arena familiarization, you hear that a lot. I guess I think in your your Western universe, they they kind of call it opening the arena up and everybody can go in and ride around mm-hmm. arena familiarization. Okay. You see that a lot, take advantage of that. But yes, in in hunter jumper shows, I don't know if in the jumper divisions they do it, but in the hunter shows. You can have paid schooling where you can go in, there is a course set up, and you can go in and school over it, but you're not being judged. And that can be very, very useful for pinpointing what the problem might be. If you have a horse that you're unfamiliar with or things tend to go well in the warm-up and not so well during the class, okay, today I'm going to do my paid warm-up. Today he's really feeling nappy. I need to ride more forward. Well, now you know that before your first class starts. When you're being judged, so that can be a really, really handy tool. I think people have gotten really smart about the psychology of showing because even the
0: best horse in the whole world, the best trained horse, never taken a misstep. You take them in an arena enough times and go fast and hard for three minutes and then leave. After a while, they're going to start looking at that arena like that's the arena where we're crazy, and I'm going to start getting really hyped up. And so you have to do things like that, like you know, pay for that warm up where I can get my horse in there alone and we can do it slow and easy or go to a smaller show. And you know, you're, know you again, still respectful of the event, but we're not trying to win this. We're just getting through this and it's going to be calm and easy and nice. And so there's all sorts of little things you can do like that. It's part of maintaining your show horse because uh, it is a mental game as much as it is a physical game.
1: Oh, absolutely. We, we talk all the time about the physicality of keeping our horses sound and ways, methods, ways, medications, techniques. We spend millions of calories and millions of dollars on that part. But keeping the horse and the rider sound mentally, if you don't have if you don't have the brain cells, the rest of it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> you can have a sound horse, but if he's got no brain, <laughs> yep. where are you gonna be, right? Where are you gonna be? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So before we, before we wrap up today, do you have anything interesting and fun? Of course you do coming up in the next couple of months or so. Any more competitions?
2: Oh,
0: so there is something I'm thinking of doing, but I'm probably not going to do because I really need to spend time with my own ponies. Um, But there is a Mustang show in September. This is not put on by Mustang Heritage Foundation. This is put on by a gentleman named Stormy Mullins. who it's it's like a makeover it's the same format you can adopt a mustang from um april 1st through i think may 31st you just go and pick out whatever mustang you want from the blm and you train on it and then there's no entry you just you can just go get that mustang and then show in september so i'm Thinking of doing it. Um, It's funny because I talked to one of my friends who they are a storefront and they have wild Mustangs at their place. And I was like, okay, in case I was going to do this, what kind of Mustangs you got? She goes, can I interest you in one that might be pregnant? And I'm like, (laughs) sold. Um, I'm like, well, okay, that would be amazing, but that's going to be really hard to train that horse for a competition if she may or may not be pregnant.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound like the best recipe.
0: No, no. Yeah. My
1: mom would totally be into it
0: because she would love nothing more than to have a baby Mustang at the place. But,
1: uh, <laughs> so there's that.
0: I've got a clinic coming up in June in Oregon. Um, there's Ooh,
1: tell me, tell a- me more about this clinic in Oregon. When, what, do you know yes. what the dates are
0: in June? I, yes. I'm going to pull up my calendar right now because it's like the third week in June. I believe it's the 20, I want to say it's the 24th and 25th. Um, I haven't decided if it's two or three days yet, um, but it's kind of up in the Portland area. Um, And then uh, there's an idea in the works of doing another clinic at that facility. This would be later in the year with uh, Shauna Karish. Um, Yeah. Doing a joint clinic. Um, So other than that, I will be doing those. And then uh, I'm just hauling Remy to a bunch of shows at the stock horse of Texas association and hoping our cow work gets a little bit better before the
1: end of the year. Ooh you, you just need to borrow some cows from somebody for a couple of months.
0: I know, but cows are a pain in the butt. That's um, true they are. I think I'll just chase my donkeys around. They're going to be thrilled about that.
1: <laughs> so people who want to follow along with you, see what where what see about your clinics. Do you put your clinic dates and stuff on your website, I hope? You know. No, very. <laughs>
0: I'm going to. I know. Uh, so I have this thing called
1: ADHD, and uh, it makes it a little difficult. But I, I promise I will put it up there. So there's a there's one in June. Everybody, Hester Mary, email her, message her on Facebook, post on her Facebook page. Mary Kits Miller, is it Mary Kits Miller Horsemanship, right? On my Facebook page, yes. Mary Kits Miller Horsemanship. Go over there, like and follow. Post on there that you want to know about her clinic in Oregon. And force her to put the information up. (laughs) Be the squeaky wheel. It makes me want to fly to Oregon. Oh, that would be fun. Portland, anyway, right? Oregon is gorgeous. I love that state, especially. So
0: I'm going to drive up, and I'm going to go through my one of my favorite places in the whole country, called the Columbia River Basin Gorge, which is like if you want jaw dropping beautiful scenery, that's the place. There
1: you go. And if somebody wants to hire you to do a clinic in their part of the country, they can just contact you through your Facebook or website. Yep. There you yep. go.
0: Facebook would probably be the best.
1: There we go. Yeah, she's always on Facebook. That's how I call her. That's how I, yeah, don't bother emailing her. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. All righty. Well, there we go. That's, in the, that's all for this time around. And you're going to find all of the notes on today's topics at horsesinthemorning.com. Horses in the Morning is also where you're going to find us on Facebook. On Twitter, we're Horse Radio. And if you haven't done so already, go on over to your favorite podcast player, probably the one you're listening to this show on, and search Horse Radio Network. We have what we call the all shows feed. All of the shows on the Horse Radio Network, and there are tens of thousands of them, are all on the same feed. So you can press one button and get them all. Ta-da! So do that today. And uh, we'll be back again next month with War from Mary. Yep. It'll be fun.